This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. They are some of our favorites. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song we've done a bunch, Gimme Shelter, The Rolling Stones, my personal favorite, Jesus Take the Wheel, Another Brick in the Wall, Georgia on My Mind. Let's throw to Greg Hengler for our next installment of the story of a song. Our next story of a song dates back to 1810. The hymn Long Time Traveler, or Long Time Traveling, has been performed with many variations of instrumentation, arrangement, and melody. But the version from the Wailing Jennies is performed in its most traditional way, as a trio and sung a cappella. The Wailing Jennies trio consists of three mothers, Ruth Moody, soprano, Nikki Meta, mezzo, and Heather Massey, alto. All three write original songs, but the Wailing Jennies are also very well known for their covers. These include, to name just a few, 17 covers of traditional hymns, 12 covers of Emmylou Harris, 12 of Tom Petty. Here's one. You belong among the wildflowers. You belong on a boat out at sea. Sail away, kill off the hours. You belong somewhere you feel free. Dolly Parton. Everything's gonna work out just fine. Everything's gonna be alright. It's been all The Whale and Jennies were founded in 2002. Here's Heather Massey on the group's first meeting in Philadelphia. So we got together in the handicapped women's bathroom, and, and I think we sang Amazing Grace or something. And yeah, I felt like singing with my sisters, and, and we all had that feeling, so it was sort of made to be. A guitar shop brought the three together for a joint performance. Here's Ruth. He said, you guys are going to become a band for sure. You need a name. Um, and that show did sell out really fast, so we added another show, and then that sold out, and then we started getting uh, requests to come and play shows. So, yeah, we did get a sense um, that something was happening, and um, it was a lot of fun. It was, we, were, we were, you know, pretty green and, and uh, just really doing it for the love of it, and, and that's, that's the kind of magical feeling you want at the start of something. Long Time Traveler is a deceptively simple tune that relies on the pentatonic scale as well as an odd prosody resulting in a hauntingly beautiful sound that evokes not only remote America in the early 19th century, but also its musical origins in Renaissance and earlier England, Scotland, and Ireland. Long Time Traveler is much in the vein of another story of a song we've done here at Our American Stories. Go Rest High on That Mountain by Vince Gill. Go rest high on that mountain Your work on earth is done Longtime Traveler is an expression of one who has passed away and is leaving good friends, but 
as the song goes, your fond embrace I now exchange for better friends above. It's also a song of hope for those who are still living and look forward to their eternal reward in heaven. The song is soulful and filled with longing. In fact, the sentiment that is often said most about the Wailing Jenny's cover of this traditional hymn is simply, there's just something about this song. In other words, this hidden treasure is something you can listen to over and over again. Here is Longtime Traveler, all two minutes and ten seconds of it. He fleeting charms of earth, farewell your springs of joy are dry. My soul now seeks another home, a brighter world on high. I'm a long time traveling here below, I'm a long time traveling away from home. I'm a long time traveling here. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And what we love about our music segments is, my goodness, listen to the sounds, the harmonies. And as so often is the case, and I remember distinctly that Robert Plant piece we did, you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and look at Robert Plant. As you recall, the great drummer had died, John Bonham, and Plant was lost. And he had come to America in the 60s to discover blues. He came back in about the year 2000 and discovered, well, Roots music. And he and Alison Krauss recorded some of the most beautiful music ever. Black meets white, country meets gospel. And what you get, well, you just heard some of what we get. Stories of a song. Go to Story of a Song on our website. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. The Whale and Jenny's Longtime Traveler. Here on Our American Story. Thank you. 
we continue with our American stories. Kevin Briggs is a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped to prevent some 200 suicides. During his career, he was called to the Golden Gate Bridge about twice a month to respond to someone poised to jump from that bridge. Here's Kevin recalling one such encounter. We received a call of an individual over the rail and standing on it's called the cord c-h-o-r-d and i was the sergeant on duty we worked 12 hour shifts it was starting to to get dark out i had a new commander for our area office he's the guy in charge and i told him hey i'm going down there it's almost six but i want to make sure everything goes smooth and see if i can do anything to help so he goes okay he goes but i want to go with you he was new he wanted to see this we get down there one of my officers is engaging this individual over the rail. He is standing on that cord, hanging on to the cables and looking down. So I just wanted the officer to know that I was there. So I touched his shoulder. He looked back and saw me. But the gentleman he was speaking to looked back and looked right at me also. And he said, you're the negotiator, aren't you? No, sir. I'm just here to help whatever we can do get you back over and get you some assistance. He continues to look right at me. He goes, you have three master's degrees, don't you? I bit right into this one. Yes, sir, because that's a hook. That's what we can use to extend the time with these folks. So the officer, being the very smart and intelligent man he did, sees the guy engaging me, so he does this. He steps to the side. I would have done the same thing. Now it's on me because he's engaging me. He's under the influence of alcohol, very emotional as most people are up there. He's going with his mood up and down and up and down. And I'm going with him, and it doesn't, it's not going very well. I'm not able to connect with him that well. He's not giving me much information. And he keeps looking down, and I tell my commander, you know what, this isn't going very well. This, this may go bad. You might want to step back in case he goes. He goes, nope, I'm going to stay right here. Okay. So I keep going, and we found out. We, what we call hooks, things that I can connect with him, whether that's family, whether that's something sports that we can connect with. We found out about his family, and I continue with that. How would your family feel, do you think, with you gone? And we expanded on that. It was going well. And then all of a sudden, he just turns around, holding on that cable, looks at the water, and starts doing this heavy breathing. And to me, that's a big indication that he's going to go. So I had heard of a technique, and the only time you could really try this is during this type of situation. So I did this. Hey! It's to snap him out of that sequence of what he's doing, whether they're counting, heavy breathing, and it worked. And it worked well. And he turned around, and he was angry at me for doing that. But we reconnected, and I said, hey, brother, I'm here for you. I don't want to see you do anything. So we talked about this for a while and kept going about the family. I kept focusing on that. He decided, okay, all right, you listened, I'm going to come back over. So he did on his own. Fantastic, fantastic. We got him some help. We take him to a hospital. And that's not a movie that he's involved in. That's real life. And he's got to figure out how to make a connection. And if you noticed, he used the word listen. And he did, because you can't connect to somebody if you don't listen to him. 
And you can't go into these things with a plan because everybody's different. And how calm he is and what he's like, it's just, he's just already, you know, he's got that, just the perfect demeanor to figure out how to do that. And my goodness, he's not in a rush. Here's Kevin telling the story of another encounter with a would-be jumper. Coincidentally, this man was named Kevin, too. There again on the Golden Gate Bridge. I received a call of a man over the rail. I responded with my motorcycle on the sidewalk down there. I saw him on the sidewalk. When he saw me, right over the rail, I thought he was gone. Around the two towers of the bridge, it's just this small pipe. Kevin stood on that small pipe for 90 minutes. During that 90 minutes, my knees were hurting like hell because I was kneeling down, talking to him so he could look down at me so I can empower him. That's what this is all about. For most of this, except for four or five minutes, I listened. Kevin spewed things out and was crying. His birth mother had abandoned him. His depression, all these things, school, being bullied, all these things had taken a toll on him and nobody had listened. I say it's very easy to listen, but actually it's really not. If you're giving them their full attention and you're hearing what's going on, instead of your own agenda and trying to think of, okay, how can I top that story? What can I do? What's my response going to be? If we can just take this in and listen, it's very difficult to do. We're not taught to listen. We're taught to read, write, do math, all these things. We are not taught to listen. How we do things when we're up on that bridge, we use active listening skills. Open-ended questions, paraphrasing, summarization, I messages to connect with these folks. High emotions equals low rational thought. So we try to stretch that time out as long as we can. If I would just walk up and say, go back over here, what are you doing? For one, the uniform scares people. It does. I know that. We walk up slow. We approach slow. I ask their permission to come up and speak with them. I'm going to empower them as much as I can. Whatever hooks that I can get, family, friends, sports, whatever it is, we're going to go with that, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to expand on that. We expand that time, allow the rational thought to come back up, and this is basically how it works. This is what we do. Some of the damaging phrases that we do not use. Calm down really gets people angry when you say that. More, you should. You should. They don't like that either. Nobody likes hearing that. You should do this. You should do that. Doesn't work. Have you tried this? Works much better. Have you tried this? Why? Places blame. Makes them very angry. Makes us angry. Why did you do that? Why are you here? You're not getting the understanding of what's going on. And I understand my favorite. Do we really? Do I understand when he's over that rail? No, I may have depression, but it doesn't go to that level. I don't understand. But, so if I understand you correctly or if I hear you correctly, and they'll tell you how they feel, and we can correct that. Very, very important. Kevin did come back over that rail that day after that 90 minutes. We were invited to New York City, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and he spoke there. And he actively speaks now. 
to people about what happened during his life. How did he get to that level? He didn't even know how to get to the bridge. He doesn't remember even driving to the bridge that day. But he got there, and he was over the rail. And it wasn't I saved him. I have saved nobody. Nobody, not one person. I may have been a conduit, but these people come back over the rail. It's them doing it. They're the ones that make that decision. It's easy to let go and fall. Very easy. It's much harder to come back over that rail. He's had those same problems when he came back over. They're there. They're not going away. But he faced those. Pulled up his bootstraps. Went head on with them. He still has issues. We all do. But he's here. And he's doing really well. And that's Kevin Briggs, a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped prevent over 200 suicides. And by the way, you can learn more about Kevin Briggs from his book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair, or go to his website, www.pivotal-points.com. And by the way, it's so true what he said about listening. It just doesn't get taught. And we're taught how to read and write and perform and debate, but not to listen. You know, in Proverbs, well, it says, no one is as deaf as the man who will not listen. And Stephen Covey had written so beautifully and brilliant about listening and said most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And that skill set that Briggs is talking about, we can all use a little bit of help on that listening skill. And boy, those bad words, calm down, you should do this or that, and so true about I understand. No one wants to hear that. My goodness, this guy should be teaching courses for all of us. Kevin Briggs' story, the California Highway Patrolman, retired here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, art, sports, history, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free and terrific newsletter. You give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week, direct to your inbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love talking to authors, and today we have a longtime journalist, Amy Sutherland. She's done all kinds of writing. She's worked in newspaper industry, and in the early 2000s, she started writing books and working on magazine pieces. The book she'll be talking about today is entitled, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. Here's Amy. Amy. 
People are always trying to change each other's behavior. The only thing I started to do differently was I started trying to change my husband's behavior by changing my behavior first. I started using my own behavior as communication. And that's the biggest lesson, I think, maybe, or one of the biggest lessons I got from the world of animal training is that your how you behave is communication. Amy Sutherland has found a unique way to interact with others. Many of us are trying to change those around us, which will leave us frustrated. What would happen if we just focused on changing our own behavior? Like in the 90s, late 90s, my husband and I adopted, uh, brought home a dog, our first dog as adults, a little puppy, an Australian shepherd we named Dixie Lou. And uh, she was a herding dog and she was a ball of fire. So my husband and I took her to a trainer and we had our sights set on teaching Dixie how to run agility courses. But to do that, we had to first take her to basically like a puppy obedience class. It was just my good luck that this trainer trained with all positive reinforcement, what uh, is called often clicker training. But uh, the, the thrust of clicker training is that training is fun and it's done with positive reinforcement, that there's no punishment as in there's the no uh, leaking, uh, jerking the leash, you know, barking orders at the dog. It's a much more civil and humane and intellectually challenging experience. That's basically how I first learned about animal training and not only how interesting it was as something to learn for myself as a human, but that it was a really interesting intellectual challenge to have that amount of self-control to learn how to work with another species and the payoff was humongous and that was getting to communicate with another species. Uh, In this case, my gorgeous little dog, Dixie Lou. So I was super hooked on animal training and I had a friend who was an editor of a magazine and she knew this. She knew that I loved animal training and loved animals. And uh, she also knew that uh, I had spent a lot of time in France and that I had workable French. And so she gave me this great assignment to go to the set of 102 Dalmatians and do a story on the production there. The, the thing with a movie set is it sounds like like a super sexy story assignment. But the fact is, what happens on movie sets is that you stand around a lot. So there was a lot of time to kill. Uh, But it was just my good luck that given it was 102 Dalmatians, that there were all these dogs on the set and with their trainers. But anyhow, it turned out they had all gone to the school I had never heard of. And it was Moore Park Community College's Exotic Animal Training Management Program, which has the appropriate acronym of EDEM. Um, And this was really the Harvard University, is the Harvard University for animal trainers in this country, and it has a reputation internationally too. Um, So if you want to get somewhere in this field, you ideally want to go to the school. So this, like, (laughs) actually, it struck me as almost something made up. But, uh, you know, once you get into the world of animals, it seems like anything's possible. So uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a book idea um, for my second book, uh, I 
remembered this school and um, thought that that had the potential for a book and uh, I was completely right. It had more than enough material for a book and I spent about a year and a half following these students. I was following them as they learned how to work with everything from emus to wolves to boa constrictors to tigers to uh, they had a trained hyena. They had loads and loads of parrots and they used the same progressive training methods using positive reinforcement to work with these animals and to get them to do all kinds of amazing behaviors. But it also became a, more of a life-changing experience for me than I expected because to learn how to work with these animals they had to learn sort of almost a philosophy. They had to learn a different way of thinking and um, that way of thinking really started to get under my skin. I started to realize that the way that they were working with these animals and the ideas they were using and techniques that they were using, that if they could work with these exotic animals, that it might make sense to start using some of these ideas to improve my own personal relationships and the, the relationship I thought I would try some of these ideas with was with my marriage, <laughs> with my husband, with the homo sapien known as Scott Sutherland. One of the first times I did this, which I've, I've, I ended up writing about for the New York Times, was uh, my husband is a perpetual key loser. And this is a behavior that sort of charged in our house, meaning he would be looking for his keys, he'd be stomping around, and it was really hard for me to ignore the stomping. And so I would somehow always get involved with him looking for his keys. And sometimes I would help him actually look, or sometimes I'd make suggestions of how he could avoid this in the future. That never went over very well. But it would just end up turning into this drama. One of the lessons they teach the students when they work with the uh, exotic animals is that you should basically ignore behavior that you don't want. Meaning, when you pay attention to behavior you don't want, you are in some way potentially reinforcing that behavior. Say, for example, a dolphin trainer asks a dolphin to do a, you know, some kind of cue, like flip or whatever, but the dolphin doesn't do it, or the dolphin instead decides to spit water on that trainer, the trainer will uh, studiously ignore that behavior. Because if they respond in any way, that dolphin might think that that was pretty much fun and squirt water on them again. So I use that same sort of thinking the next time my husband lost his keys, I tried what a dolphin trainer would do, and when I heard the stomping and the harumping, I just ignored him, and I did not get involved. And the next thing I knew, my husband had found his keys, and, you know, no drama, and I had actually felt kind of like I had wasted years and years of my life helping him find the keys in the past. So I ended up writing about this sort of new approach to my marriage with the help of animal training. For the New York Times, for their modern love section, I got an overwhelming response that I didn't expect. Within a week, I was signed up to go on to the Today Show. 
I had a movie deal that was in the works, and I had a book deal that was in the works. So it turns out that people <laughs> really need help with their some of their marriages and that I had found something that might do the trick for a lot of people. That is how I ended up writing my third book, which is what is called What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. It's sort of the story about how I changed my thinking about how to deal with the human relationships in my life based on what I had learned from the school for exotic animal trainers. And when we come back, we continue with Amy Sutherland, her book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. More importantly, her story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to author Amy Sutherland, the writer of the book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. And she's been telling us the story about her visits to the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program in Moore Park, California. She wrote a column about her experiences there and how she began to use the technique on her husband. By the way, I love that she called him Homo sapien, Scott Sutherland, and Homo sapien Lee Habib need similar training. I don't just lose keys. I lose everything. Let's return to her story. After I wrote that column, some pe- I got actually mostly positive responses to that. But you know, some people were sort of bothered by it and they it didn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things is they said is that, you know, why can't you just tell your husband um, what you want him to do? You know, like, as if I hadn't tried that for most of my marriage. I mean, that's what we're all doing all the time, right? We are, you know, uh, we're all trying to change each other's behaviors, but we tend to do it verbally. And we tend to do it often negatively, like with uh, criticizing or nagging or going on and on and about how we feel about something. It becomes very clear when you work with animals because you don't have that verbal component. All you have is your behavior. So you don't get to go back to an animal and say, oh geez, what I really meant was bloody bloody blah. Or, you know, hey emu, I really don't like it when you, you know, try to whack me with your head. That I saw the power of that with all these amazing things these trainers trained. So what a lot of people were missing is that, yeah, I was trying to change my husband's behavior, but I changed myself first. And the, the, the sort of end bonus for that, which I didn't think about at the time, turned out to be that in doing this, it made me a calmer person it made me um, a more self. I had more self-control. I got better at not taking things personally. It had this sort of transformative effect on my own personality. And since then, I would say that uh, it had the effect on my marriage of one. I quit nagging because one of the rules of animal behavior is that if you're using a technique and it's not working, it's not having any success, then you should stop doing that. 
I mean, that seems so obvious, but how many of us just keep repeating ourselves and nagging? I mean, I certainly did. So I stopped doing that, uh, and that was a relief to my husband, I'm sure. It certainly actually was a relief to me, I found, too, to not hear myself saying the same old thing again. What is the benefit of reward versus punishment? But the truth is, what most people don't know, is that all these ideas that inform modern animal training came from the world of human psychology. They came from the world of B.F. Skinner and um, behavior science. What he found is a living organism learns the most effectively when they are rewarded as opposed to being punished. This was, uh, you know, he studied this, he trained pigeons, but he basically was, you know, rooted in a scholarly, academic, psychological, human psychological world. To really be an effective trainer, you have to look in the mirror and sort of understand what it is that you're doing uh, that might be reinforcing uh, other people's behaviors. You know, how could it how could it start with you? You know, there's there's times it's not, but you have to always think about that and think about, you know, what you could be doing differently. The other thing that I had uh, I thought a lot about is um, uh, is in in the training world they have a saying that's called know your species. And uh, what that means is that you understand the species of animal that you are working with, meaning is it does it does it like to sleep at night? Does it like to sleep during the day? Does it uh, does it like cold weather? Does it like hot weather? I thought about that with the people in my life. Like what were the behaviors about them? that were dialed in, that were just like too much a part of their wiring, ones that I really am, was, were never going to change or had to think about what was reasonable to expect. Like um, my husband, you know, I had not really expected to try to get my husband to quit losing his keys. That was, you know, he, he tends to be a kind of thinky person and he's often sort of, you know, not, you know, thinking of other things while he's doing, you know, the normal things like putting his keys down somewhere so he's not keeping track of them. Um, I, instead of putting my sights on that behavior, I set my sights on changing what happened when we looked for his keys. Our lives would be much less frustrating if we didn't take things so personally. This does not mean we don't have feelings, but instead we see outside of ourselves and practice empathy. Because people have some of these behaviors really wired in, and also, in addition to that, you might take how somebody is responding to you personally when in fact it's got to do with something other than you. So I learned to take things less personally. So, for example, uh, in, the train, in the animal training world, uh, trainers, one of the big rules is that you do not take anything personally. You do not say they really discourage the students from talking about the animals liking them or not liking them. Because um, that's just too uh, anthropomorphic of a view. That is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities. They wanted them to always have a neutral sort of idea of what the animal was doing and not make it some uh, 
highly charged or emotional reason for why an animal was doing something. Because when you think that way, you might have trouble seeing why an animal is doing something. So I started thinking about that with people and thinking about when was the when were the times that I was taking what somebody did personally when in fact it had nothing to do with me. How has Amy's life changed in light of all this? I mean, I think one of the strongest things I learned is when is to know when to not respond. I've gotten so much better at that and to just you know, when I, it's the idea that, you know, that one of the things the trainers say is you get what you reinforce, right? That's like a universal rule. And uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, boiled down uh, sort of approaches to life I've ever heard. So if you get what you reinforce, then by, you know, you start to think about, you get much better about not reinforcing and knowing when to either not say anything to leave the room, to disengage somehow. But she doesn't just practice these ideas on others. I mean, the thing is, is that I use a lot of this stuff on myself to understand like when I can think through something and when I can't, when I should be doing online checking and when I shouldn't be. Because you gotta be real with yourself about when you're clear in the head and what you can expect out of yourself. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the word training because it feels or sounds manipulative. But maybe it's not what we think. That brings up sort of like an issue that a lot of people have with training. A lot of people have a negative connection to that word. Oddly, because we have weight training and people train for sports and... There's a lot of positive ways it's used with people, but a lot of people associate the word training with dog training. And dog training traditionally, unfortunately, was very negative-based with a lot of punishment. That has changed, thank God. But I think that when you use that word, people often get their hackles up. Fact is, for me, is I think of the word as training, I equate it with teaching. I also equate it with communication. I think the world is slightly changing about that. I think there's a a movement in this country. I actually spoke at a conference this summer, and it was a conference called Convergence. And the convergence was that half the room was animal trainers and half the room were people who are already using these ideas with people. So... Uh, there's a form of clicker training that's called tag teaching and it's basically being it's it's using the clicker with humans um, and it's use they're using it the same kind of like bare bones technology to teach uh, people how to work on assembly lines to help people improve their golf swings to help surgeons learn how to tie uh, surgical residents, how to tie uh, surgical knots properly. They find that the same system of using a, a sound to mark when somebody gets something right works with humans just as it does with animals. So I think someday I won't seem like such a weirdo. <laughs> it's my hope. <laughs> when you begin seeing outside yourself, you start to see animals and people as individuals. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Amy Sutherland. And again, her book, What Shamu, taught me about love, life, and marriage. 
And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. And send us your stories, your relationship stories, your lost stories, your love stories, any old story. Send them into OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll do our best to turn them around and put them up on the airwaves for you, for all of you. Again, Amy Sutherland, her story, her book, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, and we'd love to hear your story. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, and by the way, while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our three best stories every week. Joy Neal Kidney is a listener in Iowa, and has a family full of heroes. And by the way, she listens on WHO, and that's a great station in Des Moines, home of Paul Harvey and so many other broadcasting legends, and we're honored and we're grateful to be on that great flagship station in the great state of Iowa. And Joy writes and records those stories for us. She's told a few for us, actually. And here is Joy Neal Kidney and her story titled, Reconciling Dad, the Farmer I Knew, with Dad, the Veteran Pilot. An engine smoked and sputtered. One propeller began to stir on the aging bomber. Then another. The third engine started to shudder and choke satisfying sounds of old piston engines. Finally, the last one coughed to life. A few minutes earlier, I had been sitting in the pilot's seat of that World War II Flying Fortress, an old B-17, like the one in the movie Memphis Belle. In the seat where my dad sat seven decades ago. My dad, the farmer, As I sat in the cockpit looking out the pilot's window at the gold-tipped propellers, I tried to imagine that Iowa farmer teaching cadets to fly and later being in charge of that big four-engine bomber. In my mind's snapshot of Dad, he was wearing big Smith overalls, where in the bib he carried a pocket watch and a decal bullet pencil with a little metal cap to protect the lead point. Shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow, a Pioneer brand seed corn cap, tired leather work boots, and Rockford socks. Vignettes of him guzzling Coca-Cola from a small curvy glass bottle, leaving for the field on his red Massey Harris tractor, overseeing his crops from his perch on the gate. 
throwing back his head when he laughed. Penciling neat diagrams and math formulas on scraps of paper. Catching a nap at the table after the noon dinner, his head resting on folded arms. That's the dad I knew. My husband, an air traffic controller at the Des Moines airport, had called to let me know that a B-17 was there just for a short stopover. So I rushed out with my camera and asked if I could see inside, telling them that my dad had flown one in 1945. One man led me up a short ladder into the fuselage, then over a catwalk above the bomb bay to the cockpit. He told me to take all the time I wanted there. As I sat in the pilot's seat, a strong breeze buffeted the bomber. It swayed slightly, it sighed and creaked, just like Dad's barn on a windy day. I had forgotten about those friendly sounds. My thoughts turned to Dad's thorough instructions to my sister and me for our summer chores. How many half buckets of corn and oats to feed the hogs? How full to pump water into the cattle tank? And Dad patiently teaching me to shift gears on the Chevy's steering column in the barnyard the summer I learned to drive. It began to dawn on me that he would have used that same thoroughness and patience with young cadets. And I could appreciate that, yes, he would have been put in charge of a multi-engine plane and crew of 10. He eventually became commander of the even larger B-29 Superfortress, with a date set to leave for Saipan and combat over Japan when the war came to an end. While in that rare bomber, I was blessed with a glint of my dad in his other life. As a young lieutenant, in charge of aircraft instead of tractors, airmen instead of livestock. To exit the old warbird, I was told I could climb back through the plane and down the ladder, or I could drop out the way the crew did, through a small door right below the cockpit by grasping the edge and swinging out. There's no photographic evidence, but I did it, just like Dad had long ago. I returned to the other side of the chain-link fence to watch the fortress take off. The four engines were coaxed awake, one at a time. Did Dad also love that deep-throated growl? In a few minutes, the awkward to taxi aircraft headed toward the runway. Nose up, tail down. It lumbered behind a hangar. A roar signaled takeoff, and the plexiglass nose emerged from behind the building, pointing the bomber down the runway. By the time that sleek, rugged old warbird leveled off and disappeared in the distance, I could readily reconcile my dad the farmer with dad the young World War II pilot. 
And what a great story. Again, that was Joy Neal Kidney, and she's from Des Moines, Iowa. And this story comes to us from Des Moines, and thanks to our great station in Des Moines, WHO. And it's so great to hear someone trying to understand her dad's other life, that life before the life. And my goodness, take a look one day at one of those B-17 flying fortresses. She said it was a sleek, rugged old warbird, and that it was. Indeed, it was the third most produced bomber of all time, and it's unimaginable that we could have thought of even winning the war without our great industrial capacity. Joy Neal Kidney's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we look for stories all over the place. And when we read something great, we call up the author and ask if they'll share the story in their own voice. We first read this piece by Howard Husick in the Wall Street Journal. It's titled, Decades in an Asylum Wasn't the Worst Fate. Howard is the research vice president of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to its periodical, City Journal, from which this piece was adapted. Here's Howard sharing the story of a family member. To say that I didn't know my great-uncle, Wolf Levine, would understate things. I didn't even know of such an uncle, brother of my mother's father, a grandfather with whom I was close. In retrospect, it's clear that he was simply unmentionable. We'd write it off today as the stigma of mental illness. Wolf's story is tragic dating from an era of large public asylums that America has sought to forget. His journey to the Lima State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Lima, Ohio, began in 1910 with a criminal conviction, one to five years in a reformatory for pickpocketing. Six years before, Wolf had immigrated to America at age 14. Theft was not a shocking charge for a young man in Cleveland living on a block of ramshackle frame houses with his widowed mother and her three other children. Once convicted, Wolf would never again be a free man. After less than two years in that reformatory, itself later made famous as the setting for the film The Shawshank Redemption, he exhibited persecutory delusions and auditory hallucinations. That's how he wound up in Lima, where the conditions were so bad that by 1974, when he remained there, a federal judge chastised Ohio for failing to ensure dignity, privacy, and humane care. He died in custody in 1982 at age 92 and was buried near Toledo, the costs covered by a fund for indigence supported by a local Jewish federation. Wolf Levine had spent 72 years in institutions. In the language of latter-day reformers, he'd been warehoused for his entire adult life. His aspiration to be a playwright, the occupation he actually listed when admitted to the reformatory, would prove a dark irony for somebody formally diagnosed with dementia precox, schizophrenia, 
as it later came to be called. Yet the story is not so straightforwardly bleak as it seems, and it casts light on how far America has come and not come in treating the mentally ill. Are we treating the severely mentally ill better today than we did a century ago? Wolf did not do well at that reformatory. In a year's time, more than 300 days were added to his sentence for misbehavior. This almost certainly reflected an onset and worsening of his mental condition. The family may have been involved in the decision to transfer him to the hospital. My great aunt, now nearly 100, my grandmother's sister, recalls my grandparents discussing what to do with Wolf. Dave and Ethel were just starting their own family, she says. They just couldn't take care of him. Nor was his extended family well off. My grandmother's immigrant father was still making deliveries on Cleveland's east side with a horse-drawn wagon well into the 1920s. Thus did Wolf arrive at Lima in 1915. Little information exists on daily life there, but census records portray an institutionalized American melting pot. My great-uncle was listed as a Russian Jew. His neighbors, all of whose occupations were listed as patient, included natives of Alabama, Indiana, Germany, Bohemia, Hungary, England, and Italy. The hospital itself was enormous, with 17 wings for 1,400 patients. It was considered the largest poured concrete structure in the world until the building of the Pentagon. The nationwide hospital system of that era was the product of a 19th century reform movement led by Dorothea Dix and Horace Mann. They'd been outraged by the imprisonment of so many of the mentally ill. By 1940, America was institutionalizing 450,000 people in mental health institutions. Though the care given was far from perfect, it did aspire to be therapeutic. A little-known book provides a remarkable window into the era. In 1931, a 52-year-old journalist named Merle Woodson checked himself into Eastern Oklahoma Hospital in an attempt to kick his alcohol problem. As he dried out, he also wrote Behind the Door of Delusion, which did not describe a quiet or oppressive warehouse. About me, the daytime activities of the hospital hummed. All the work was done by the patients. There was little detailed supervision by the attendants, although they were there, here and everywhere, all the time. A floor gang polished and shined, and a crew for making up beds did its work with a neatness which would shame many of the maids in good hotels. Patients worked in the art department, bakery, the store, or other departments of the institution. There was darkness, too. I was to learn, Woodson wrote, that a patient who apparently is in sound mind most of the time can suddenly suffer a paroxysm of wild hallucinations and become thoroughly and irresponsibly insane or even dangerously violent, then, after a period, return to an apparently normal state. Straitjackets were used, as were opiates or barbiturate sedatives. My great-uncle may have been restrained or sedated, such were the limited tools then available. They did not change Wolf for the better. For decades, he was likely a shell of a human being. Yet he also may have found satisfaction in helping with the chores, perhaps while mentally composing plays that would never be produced. 
he may have been comforted by visits from a Toledo rabbi. He was, without doubt, at least kept safe and warm through the cold Ohio winters. Instead of investing in such facilities when the level of care deteriorated, the movement toward deinstitutionalization shut them down. Today, people like my great uncle end up in prisons and jails. The Bureau of Justice Statistics once estimated that 365,000 adults with serious mental illness are behind bars. They're often kept isolated because of the risk of disruption or suicide. Imagine a latter-day Wolf Levine. After his arrest, he would be given medication for his delusions. If he didn't respond, he might be isolated throughout his jail term. Then he would be released to his poor immigrant neighborhood, either to await another arrest or to complicate life for his family. No one would force him to continue taking medication. If he threatened violence but committed no crime, he could not be involuntarily committed yet he might present a danger. The psychiatrist E. Fuller Torrey estimated in 2013 that 1% of the 12.3 million Americans suffering from serious mental illnesses pose a threat to themselves or others. That's 123,000 people, including those who push subway riders onto the tracks or those who open fire at college campuses. Providing for the severely mentally ill does not mean recreating a sprawling hospital system. At their height, asylums housed many others, the senile elderly, those suffering from what were incurable diseases such as syphilis. The population that would have to be addressed today, those 123,000, is not unmanageable. A doctor at the Kankakee State Hospital in Illinois wrote in 1893, that the public had an obligation to provide every mentally ill person with the benefit of treatment and supervision by a competent physician. Leaving Wolf Levine's successors on the street or in isolation behind bars suggests we have, in practice at least, become not more but less compassionate. And thank you for that story, Howard. Uncle Wolf Levine's story, Howard Husuk's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand-new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down, starting with Jamel. February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life. February 8th, 2006, really just another day for me. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day was another conviction. So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good. I had caught a guy with some crack. He knew a guy with some more crack, so we made a phone call. So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone. So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope. I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up. How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible? Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? Oh, what a waste of my time. Well... I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do. So I told my story, and I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel and what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered at this point. So my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him. Jamel continued to battle with his demons. So <clears throat> after battling with these, these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out. Okay, because I don't want to hear it no more. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get this thought out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails, my decisions led me there. So <clears throat> I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years. So I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell, and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God? I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm 
at home. So I got up that morning, my first thing to do was speak to somebody, which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey, first person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? Like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought, because I said I was gonna go through with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna adapt this change into my life. I'm gonna do something different. Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed. I go to work this one morning and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the council office and he was like, the fax machine beeped and he handed me the paper. And it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, we can try all we want to. It just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, me letting that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go. Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free. So February of 2008, I get caught with crack, heroin, and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime, Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys. Gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor. Because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me, to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, whoo, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. <laughs> like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus. So we knelt down there in his office and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said, amen, I was bawling and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man, there's like a list. There's gotta be a list of things I can do. Give me a list and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible, that's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, I don't know if you ever read that thing, pastor, but it's it's kind of boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. So I sat down, they put a a stack of 
reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need, to te- we need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. And I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case. It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January 09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of 09, Jamel was set free. A switch. But the story does not stop there. 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there, and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop, and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day. In August 2011. I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was, he's seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought I seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, nah, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around, and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him, get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline, stuck out my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind, 
was two things. It was myself, again, telling me to hit him. Hit him. What are you waiting on? You're taking too long. Hit him. Then God was like, hey. <laughs> God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. Let me avenge this for you. I got this. I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him. <laughs> hit him. And my son was right there, and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go, and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter, I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm gonna leave that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it, I'll never see him again anyway. What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison. So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? <laughs> one day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. <laughs> God's funny, right? <laughs> so I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like? Ooh. Yeah. It was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class. Everybody had a mentor. And she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor mentee. And um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentoring. I'm like, okay, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that. Jamel wasn't finished. She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Miss P. That was my decision. 
Let me pray on that real fast, because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision, so I wanted to be God's decision. So I prayed, and I opened my eyes, and there was a book on my desk, and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words, and it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident this is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it. All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives, and it's not just Christians, it's Jews, it's Muslims. Sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride, men particularly, women too, pride, the thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer. God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zookie. So we sit down and I say, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in the city of Benton Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what is this dude smiling at This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I just went to apologize and dude, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, no, no. It's over. It's over. You were sorry then and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is, this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up. We said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to. And I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> and then I was, we were meeting every week. And I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe. And you need a job. Uh, are you, uh, do you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you? Or what if we hire you? And, and you'd be, and are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, Things are already tense enough, you know, like, ah. <laughs> and he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude smiled. It's like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, nah, man, no, nah, I got you. I got you. Mm-hmm. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for, for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be the cash register someday and then just get the big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, bro, no. We're good. And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys 
who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, this story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation, not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news, this is the real thing. And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories.